calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit slash nocturnal. Chapter 6 Pookie's Sister Pookie parked the Buick on Union Street next to Washington Square Park. As he got out, his hands did their automatic forepad. A pad on the left pants pocket for his car keys, the right pants pocket for his cell, left breast for his gun, and right rear pants pocket for his wallet. Everything was in place. Brian was leaning on the Buick's hood, left hand pressed against the chip brown paint. Bri Bri, you okay? Brian shrugged. Might be coming down with something. That would be the day. Dude, you never get sick. Brian looked up. Beneath his shaggy dark red hair, his face looked a bit pale. You don't feel anything, Pooks? Other than guilt at hogging most of the universe's available supply of awesome, no, I'm fine. You think you caught something at the Maloney site? Maybe, Brian said. Even if Brian had caught something, they'd been there only a few hours ago. Flu didn't set in that fast. Maybe Brian was just tired. Most days, the guy hid in his darkened apartment like some nocturnal creature. Three day shifts in a row had probably played havoc with Brian's sleep patterns. They walked down Union toward the corner of Mason Street. There lay the Trattoria Cantadina restaurant. According to Tryon's info, one Pete the fucking Jew Goldblum had been seen there several times. Bri Bri, know what's bugging me? That polyester rich has our case. You psychic, Pookie said. You should be one of those fortune tellers. Just leave it alone. Like hell, Pookie would leave it alone. Why would the chief want her best two inspectors off the Maloney case? It just didn't make any sense. Maybe it had something to do with whatever was under that blue tarp. Paul Maloney had deserved a lot of bad things, but not murder. His end couldn't be considered justice, no matter what crimes he'd committed. Maloney had been tried and convicted by a jury of his peers. The court's punishments had not included the death sentence. Brian coughed, then spit a nasty glob of yellow phlegm onto the sidewalk. Lovely, Pookie said. Maybe you are sick. Maybe, Brian said. You should be a detective or something. They passed San Francisco Evangelical Church. 
After arriving from Chicago ten years ago, Pookie had given that one a whirl. Not his taste. He tried several churches before finding his home at Glide Memorial. Pookie preferred his sermons served up with a side of soul music and a touch of R&B. He realized he was walking alone. He looked back. Brian was standing there, his face in his hands, slowly moving his head side to side like he was trying to shake away a thought. Bri-Bri, are you sure you're okay? Brian looked up, blinked. He cleared his throat, let loose another goober rocket, then nodded. Yeah, I'm fine. Let's go. Trattoria Contadina was only a block away from Washington Square. Concierges knew the restaurant and sent tourists there to dine, but for the most part the place belonged to the locals. Simple white letters on a dingy green, bird-crap-strewn awning spelled out the corner restaurant's name along both Union and Mason. A bell over the door rang as Brian and Pookie walked inside. The smell of meat, sauce, and cheese smacked Pookie in the face. He'd forgotten about the place and made a mental note to come back soon for dinner. The eggplant antipasti was so good you'd slap your sister to get some, and Pookie liked his sister. About half of the linen-covered tables were full, couples and groups talking and laughing to the accompaniment of clinking silverware. Pookie was about to pull out the pictures Tryon had provided when Brian lightly elbowed him, then nodded toward the back corner. It took Pookie a second to recognize the half-lidded eyes of Pete Goldblum, who was sitting with two other men. Pookie walked to the table. Brian followed, just a step behind. That was the way they handled things. Even though Brian was smaller, he was kind of the heavy of the partnership. Pookie did most of the talking until the time for talking had passed. Then Brian took over. The Terminator had a coldness about him that people couldn't ignore. Pookie stopped at the table. Peter Goblin! All three men looked up with that stare. The one that said, We know you're a cop. And we don't fucking like cops. They all wore suits. That was unusual. The era of the well-dressed mafioso had largely passed by. Nowadays, dressing flashy was for gangbangers. Most of the really powerful guys dressed as inconspicuously as possible. Goldblum finished chewing a mouthful of food and swallowed it down. Who's asking? I'm Inspector Chang. Pookie showed his badge. He tilted his head toward Brian. This is Inspector Klauser. We're with Homicide, looking into the murder of Teddy Ablamowitz. Brian walked around to the other side of the table. The three men watched him, their attention naturally drawn to the more dangerous looking of the two cops. The man sitting opposite Goldblum spoke. Klauser? As in Brian Klauser? Pookie recognized the other two men just as Brian answered. The arrogant face of Frank Lanza the broad shoulders and shaved head of Tony Gillum. Brian nodded. That's right, Mr. Lanza. I'm surprised you know my name. Lanza shrugged. Someone told me about you. From what I hear, you're in the wrong line of work. You should be one of those... He squinted and looked to the ceiling, pretending to try and remember something. Tony... Now, what's the name of those guys they have in those silly gangster movies? The guys who kill people. Hitmen, Tony said. He spoke with a voice so deep that he might very well have the four balls of his nickname. He should be a hitman, Mr. Lanza. Right, Lanza said. A hitman, that's it. He looked at Brian. 
I heard you killed what? Four people. Brian nodded. So far. The one-liner made the men pause. Damn, Pookie had to write that one down for later. That kind of stuff could make a script sing. Mr. Goldblum, Pookie said. We'd like to ask you some questions about Teddy Oblomowitz. Never met him, Goldblum said. Either guy in the paper. Lonza laughed. <laughs> He's in three papers, if you know what I mean. Parts of them, anyway. At least that's what I heard. Lonza picked up a piece of bread and smeared it in the sauce on his plate. He shook his head dismissively, as if Pookie and Brian were a trivial annoyance that had to be temporarily tolerated. Were these guys for real? The suits, all of them together, in public like this, in an Italian restaurant? Maybe they had been quiet for six months, but stealth seemed to be over. They wanted people to see them, to know that the LCN was back in town. This ain't Jersey. Pookie said. I don't know how you run things back east, but maybe you don't understand who Oblomowitz was working for, or what happens now. Brian stared at Lonza, then picked up a piece of bread and took a bite. He means you should lie low, Mr. Lonza. Not be out like this, or anyone can roll up on you. Lonza shrugged. We're just out for a meal. We didn't do nothing wrong. You think we did something wrong? Brian smiled. The smile was even spookier than his stare. Doesn't matter what I think, he said. What matters is what Fernando Rodriguez thinks. Who the fuck is Fernando Rodriguez? It took Pookie a second to realize that Lanza wasn't making a joke. Maybe God loved Frank Lanza, because it had to be a miracle that an idiot like this had lived so long. He's the boss of the Norteños, Pookie said. Locally, anyway. You should know these things. Fernando is a man who gets things done, Mr. Lanza. If he thinks you were involved with the Oblomowitz murder, odds are you guys are going to have visitors. Real soon. Goldblum picked his napkin out of his lap and dropped it on his half-eaten dinner. Fuck that, he said quietly. I'm a tax-paying citizen. Think I'm concerned about some chicken-shit wet-back outfit? Oh, man, these guys hadn't done their homework. Underestimating the Nortenos could win you an express ticket to the morgue. Pookie felt compelled to bring Pete in, for his own safety more than for the crime. Mr. Goldblum, Pookie said, I think you should come with us. Goldblum's eyebrows raised, but his eyes stayed half-lidded. You arresting me, Gook? Pookie shook his head. I'm from Chicago, not Vietnam. And no, we're not arresting you, but why make things difficult? You know we're going to have that conversation downtown sooner or later. So let's just play nice and get it over with. Lonza laughed. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you guys are so different from East Coast cops. You never get it over with. Pookie heard the tingle of the front door's bell. Brian's eyes snapped up, then narrowed. Uh-oh. Pookie turned quickly. Two Latino men, approaching fast. Thick workingman jackets, knit hats. One red with the white N of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, the other red with the SF logo of the 49ers. Tats peeked out from their T-shirt collars, running right up to their ears. Each man had a hand in his jacket. Each man was staring at Frank Lanza. Jesus H. Christ, a hit? Here? 
Fuchs, Brian said quietly. Get back here. Now. Pookie stepped around the table before reaching into his jacket for his six hour, but the men were faster. Their hands came out of their jackets, one raising a semi-auto, the other leveling a sawed-off pump shotgun. Before the men even cleared their weapons, Brian drew his own sig with his left hand, reached out and grabbed Lonza with his right. In the same motion, he kicked the table over so the top faced the gunman, sending plates of food flying. Brian shoved Lonza down behind the overturned table. The sawed-off roared, shredding linen and splintering wood. Brian's pistol barked twice. Bam! Bam! The shotgun guy twitched. Then Brian fired for the third time in less than a second. The man's head rocked back, and he dropped. Screams filled the air. Pookie found his gun in his shaking hand. The other attacker backpedaled for the front door, firing wildly toward the table. Pookie aimed. People on the floor, ducking behind tables. Too crowded, traffic outside, people on the sidewalk. But didn't fire. A gunshot to Pookie's right. Tony Gillum, firing as the perp ran out the restaurant door. Brian came at Tony from behind, grabbing Tony's right hand and lifting it, pointing the gun to the ceiling even as Brian drove his left foot into the back of Tony's right leg. Tony grunted and fell to his knee. Brian twisted sharply, throwing the bigger man face down onto the food-strewn linoleum floor. Brian remained standing, Tony's gun still in his hand. He ejected the magazine and pulled back the slide, then walked four steps forward and kicked the sawed-off shotgun away from the downed gunman. Books, cuff Tony and call us in. The fear finally hit home. It had all gone down in four seconds, five at most. Pookie pointed his weapon just to the left of Tony's back. Don't move! Hands behind your head! Relax, Tony said as he obliged. I got a permit. Pookie set his knee into the small of Tony's back, making the man carry his weight. Just stay right there. Brian, you going after the other gunman? No way, Brian said. We wait for backup. First guy to peek his head out that door might get it shot off. He then shouted to the restaurant patrons. San Francisco police, everyone just stay where you are. Is anyone hurt? The patrons looked at one another, waited for someone to talk. No one did. A chorus of shaking heads answered Brian's question. Okay, he said. Nobody move until backup arrives. Stay down. Stay calm. Do not try to leave the building. The gunman might still be outside. Ten seconds of panic had rooted the patrons in place. They didn't relax, not even close, but they obediently stayed put. As Pookie cuffed Tony Gillum, Brian knelt next to the would-be assassin and opened the man's jacket. Glancing over, Pookie saw two spreading red spots staining the perp's white t-shirt, blood circles merging into a solid figure eight. Blood also oozed from a spot just under the man's left nostril. Two to the chest, one to the head. Pookie called for backup. He also requested an ambulance, but unless someone got a splinter from the ruined table, the paramedics wouldn't have much to do. Brian's perp was already dead. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. 
Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Holy shit, Lanza said. Holy shit! Brian sighed, closed the gunman's jacket. He looked back at Lanza. They were after you, Lanza. Like I told you, you probably want to lie low, if not just throw in the towel and go back to Jersey. A wide-eyed Lanza nodded. Yeah, lie low. Brian walked to Lanza and helped the man to his feet. You owe me, Brian said. Pookie watched. Brian had just killed a man, yet he acted like that was about as upsetting as opening the fridge to find someone had drunk the last of the milk. The casual nature and the cold stare seemed to shake Lonza up as much as the shooting itself. You owe me, Brian said again. You know that, right? Lonza rubbed his face, then nodded. Yeah, I... Holy shit, man! A name. Brian said, We want a name for this Oblomowitz thing. Lanza looked back to the dead gunman lying on the floor at Brian's feet, then nodded. Pete Goldblum had hit the deck as soon as the shooting started. He stood and wiped spaghetti sauce off his suit coat. Mr. Lanza, you don't know this cop shit. Shut up, Pete, Lanza said. I'd be a grease spot right now. You and four balls didn't do a goddamn thing. Hey, said a face down Tony Gillum. I got a round off. Sure, Tony, Lanza said. You're like a regular Green Beret. Pookie heard his own long release of breath before he knew he was letting it out. The situation was contained. It wasn't the first time he'd seen Brian Clouser in action like that, but he hoped it would be the last. Chapter 7 Brian's Lie The sun had hidden itself somewhere behind the apartment buildings. Brian was only minutes away from his bed and sleep. Usually he had trouble sleeping at night, but not today. He'd be out like a light. Riddle me something, Bri-Bri! Brian's forehead rested in his right hand. His elbow rested on the inside handle of Pookie's Buick. Whatever bug he had was rapidly getting worse. Fatigue and body aches, the start of sniffles, throat full of razor blades, the first hint at a monster headache. Brian leaned back and yawned. Pookie had been talking nonstop since they left the restaurant. That was in a manual somewhere. Keep the shooter talking after the incident. Don't give him time to get all introspective. Pookie meant well, for sure, but Brian just wanted silence. He couldn't tell his friend and partner why. Some things you just couldn't share. They were almost back to Brian's apartment. Then he'd be done with Pookie's constant chatter. Bri Bri, you hearing me? Yeah. Sure. What's the question? How does a grown man not have a car? Brian had to clear his throat before he could talk. <clears throat> don't need a car. I live right in the city. You don't need a car because I schlep you all over the place. Also a factor. Pookie double-parked in front of Brian's building. Horns behind them started honking instantly. Bri-Bri, you going to be okay? I can hang here tonight if you want. 
Brian put on his best fake solemn expression. Thanks, but no, this ain't my first rodeo. I just need to be alone and think this through. Pookie nodded. All right, playa, but call me if you start wigging out, okay? Thanks, man. Brian had to coax his exhausted body out of the car. He stumbled into his building. What a day. A shooting, handling the crime scene, giving his statement, the preliminary shooting review. Too damn much. There would be more long days to come. With all those witnesses, with a gunman opening fire in a crowded restaurant, Brian wouldn't catch any shit for this. That didn't mean, however, that he didn't have to go through the motions. A full shooting review board was already scheduled. That was always such a good time. And at the crime scene itself, before he could even leave, there'd been the mandatory chat with the police shrink. Was Brian okay? How did the shooting make him feel? Did he think he could be alone that night? Brian said what he always said, that killing a man felt awful. And as always, that was a lie. Did he enjoy killing people? No. Did he feel bad about it? Not in the least. He knew that he should feel something, but just like the last four times, he did not. The guy had fired a shotgun. If Brian hadn't put him down, it could have been Lonza in the body bag. Or Pookie. Or Brian himself. Lonza. Such an idiot. Maybe on the East Coast, people respected the Mafia enough to give them leeway, but not out here. Jimmy the Hat had been a sharp cat. His son? Not so much. Frank and his buddies dressed up like they wanted the golden age of crime to come back overnight. Well, now they knew a different story. Adrenaline had kept Brian pumped from the shooting right up through the talk with a shrink. But during that whole time, his body had been sneakily breaking down. Once the buzz of excitement wore off, he'd felt completely wiped out. Brian pressed the button to call the rickety old elevator. Instead of a click and the whir of machinery, he heard nothing. Damn it, the elevator was broken again. He pushed his body up the stairs, each step feeling like he was lifting someone else's much larger foot. He reached the fourth floor and paused. Muscle pain you could ignore. Most of it, anyway. Aches, throbbing, fever. But now he felt a new pain that demanded his attention. A pain in the chest. Brian ground his teeth then rubbed his hand hard against his sternum. Was he having a heart attack? No. It felt like it was a little above his heart. But what did he know about heart attacks? Maybe that's where they started. And then, suddenly, the pain faded away. He took a long, deep breath. Maybe he should call a doctor, but he was so damn tired. It was probably nothing, just the flu messing with his system. Maybe he was more stressed about the shooting than he knew. If his chest felt like that the next day, he'd call a doc for sure. Brian walked into his apartment and started stripping off his weapons. He managed to remove most of his clothes before he crashed into his bed and fell asleep on top of his covers. Chapter 8. Fade In, Fade Out The musty dampness of rotting cloth, the stench of rancid garbage, the pulsing heat of the hunt. Two conflicting emotions fighting for dominance. The overpowering electric taste of hatred, juxtaposed against the pinching, tingling sensation of creeping evil. Even as he hunted, something hunted him. Brian stood motionless, 
using only his eyes to track the prey. One womb. They hurt him, just like the other one had. We have waited so long. Even through the blurry, nonsensical images, he recognized the street, Van Ness, shifty streaks of people with indiscernible, blurred faces, moving swaths of fuzzy color that were cars, headlights and streetlights that made the fog glow. Brian watched his target, a target made up of abstract impressions of hazy crimson and dull gold, of wide shoulders and floppy blonde hair, of scowling eyes made of evil. Not a man, a boy, big but still young. The boy had a certain walk, a certain scent. Brian wanted this boy dead. He wanted them all dead. One womb. Hunting, but also hunted. Brian searched the skyline, looking for movement. Even as he did, he felt a deep, cold knowledge that he probably wouldn't see death coming. He needed to make the mark, the mark that kept the monster at bay. Brian felt a tap on his shoulder. He sighed in frustration, knowing he could take the prey if only there weren't so many people around. But he had another job to do. This target would have to wait. Turning now, moving, everything a blur, fade in, fade out, refocused. Looking down at an alley, must be high up. Looking down at a beat-up blue dumpster, something behind the dumpster, mostly hidden from view, but not hidden from smell. Brian recognized this scent as well. Not as good as the boy, not as healthy, more worn out, but still good enough to make his stomach rumble. Brian looked closer, a bit of red and yellow behind the dumpster, a blanket, a red blanket. The yellow looked like something familiar, a little bird. Fade out, fade in, fade out again. The dream slipped away. In his bed, Brian turned once, opened his eyes and wondered where he was. The room's darkness seemed a living thing, ready to sting him with blackened barbs. Sweat dripped from his face, soaked into his sheets. His sheets. His bed. He was in his own apartment. He'd left the dream, but the fear of the monster that hunted him came along for the ride. His chest hurt, far worse than it had on the stairs. Was that ache from dream terror, or from the flu that made him burn and sweat? Brian reached out and turned on his nightstand lamp. He winced at the sudden light, but not for long. He had to find some paper, find a pen. He had to draw. Chapter 9 Rex Wakes Up Rex Deprovdichuk woke up hot and sweating, excited, terrified. For a brief moment he remained lost in the dream's power, his heart hammering, his breath short and fast. Then the aches faded back in like a vice slowly squeezing every part of his body. The pain, the fever. He'd never been this sick before. His pants felt funny. He reached down and touched, felt something stiff. He pulled his hand back. What was that down there? Embarrassment swept over him, making his skin feel even hotter. He had a boner. 
He knew what boners were, of course. Kids at school talked about them all the time. People talked about them on TV. He'd even seen them in Internet porn. Seen them, sure, but he'd never had one. Watching porn hadn't given him one. Neither had the girls at school. Rex had always known he was supposed to have them, yet they had never come. Nothing had ever turned him on before. But the dream had. He had been stalking Alex Panos, the biggest of the bullies who made Rex's life hell. Stalking him, like a lion would stalk a zebra. The dream's smells still filled Rex's nose. Rotting cloth, garbage, and those conflicting feelings. Burning rage against the bully, and mind-numbing fear of the thing lurking in the shadows. One womb. What a great dream. He'd almost jumped down from some building to attack that asshole Alex. Wouldn't that have been great? There had been other people in the dream. People who were hunting side by side with him. Two people. Two people with strange faces. Dreams were crazy like that. His dick throbbed so bad it hurt. It was a different kind of hurt than the sickness that overwhelmed his body. Growing pains, Roberta had told him. He still didn't know about that. The pains had come out of nowhere just a couple of days ago. But maybe she was right. He'd just had his first boner ever, so maybe he was growing. Maybe he'd grow a lot and wouldn't be the smallest freshman in the school anymore. Maybe. Maybe he'd get big enough to beat up the bullies. The boner brought with it a huge wave of relief. In that way, at least, he was like the other boys. Rex climbed out of bed, careful to move quietly lest the squeaky floorboards wake his mother. If Roberta woke up at this hour, it would be real bad. He reached up and tenderly touched his nose, still sore. That wasn't from the body aches. It was from where Alex had punched him in the face yesterday. Just a little punch, and it had put Rex down. If Alex ever hit Rex as hard as he could, Rex didn't want to think about that. He walked to his desk and turned on his lamp. He had to draw a symbol he'd seen in the dream, something that he knew would make the fear fade away. He'd draw the symbol, and then something else, one of those strange faces he'd seen in the dream, a face that should have frightened him, but did not. Finally, Rex would draw Alex. Alex, and all the things Rex wished he could do to him. The sketch pad waited. Rex drew... You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. 
This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.